All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this 22nd day of September 2020. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you, I do write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks that focuses primarily on junior exploration companies. Uh, we're having a little bit of a hiatus here, a little bit of a downturn in the mining, mining sector in the last few days, but I think that is, uh, is really very healthy uh, development in terms, of the, uh, in terms of the gold sector and certainly gives people another chance to get into some of these situations. Uh, it's kind of difficult to buy into a stock that's going straight up and not taking a little time to base and, uh, and provide some value for investors. So I take this as a, as a good time for people to start looking and doing their homework and understanding the stories that I cover in my newsletter. Uh, my, you can go to miningstocks.com to sign up for my letter, uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And if you'd like to plug Chen Lin's letter as well, what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling, go to chenpicks.com for that. Uh, excellent uh, coverage on the biotechs as well as the mining and energy sector. And I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show and making one of the more popular shows on Voice America Business Channel. And also want to encourage you to continue sending along any comments you have about this show, good, bad, or indifferent. We'd like to hear from you. I uh, also want to thank our sponsors, uh, as I always do, for making this show economically viable. NV Gold, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp., Lion One Metals, SK Mining, uh, Grand Portage and GMV Minerals are the sponsors for this week's show. Before I get started on today's show, let me remind you that I will be launching my Investing 101 Gold and Silver in the Mining Shares on October 1st. And to learn more about my course, you can go to uh, my uh, YouTube page. It's the J. Taylor Media YouTube page uh, to learn. You can uh, learn more about what's going on in the, in the next few days as we Get ready to launch on October 1st. And to learn more about the course content, you can go to course.miningstocks.com, course.miningstocks.com. And you can also, I believe, provide a, an email there so we can keep you up to date uh, as uh, the time approaches October 1st for the launch. All right, I've titled today's show, Inflation and Other Revolutionary Forces at Work in America. Alistair McLeod and Daniel McAdams uh, return. Daniel hasn't been with me for a number of years, but Alistair, as a regular guest, uh, will join me in the second half of today's show. 
The uh, the fallacies of John Maynard Keynes are obvious for anyone with the willingness to use their eyes to see. But as Alistair will point out, cognitive dissonance causes most economists to explain away the obvious truth that lower interest rates do not stimulate economic growth and higher prices. Instead, lower rates only serve to redistribute wealth to the top, well, to the very top, top one-tenth of one percent, for example. That's where most of the new wealth is going. The massive redistribution of income is no doubt a part of the violent uprisings in major U.S. cities and now appears to be a color revolution sponsored by elements within the CIA to remove Trump from office if he isn't defeated in November. In other words, we have enemies from within that seek to destroy our our Republican form of government set up by our founding fathers that was intended to protect the minority while giving power to the people and not to the government, with limited government power. That was their goal. It's clear that the far left that now controls, seems to at least control the Democrat Party, wants to get rid of all of those institutions that get in the way of power of, uh, for government, for a more powerful government. And all those institutions that our founding fathers put in place. Our founding fathers believed that the best government was the least government, and because you, unless you have a, a government that is balanced and held in check, it can very quickly enslave its citizens. That has been the norm more often than not throughout history. But alas, it seems that these basic civics lessons that have been taught in the ages past anyway, that I learned when I was in grade school, are no longer taught in our educational system. And so now we have a growing angry mob of people who think the only way to get what they want is through violence. Whereas all citizens are guaranteed by the Constitution equal protection under the law, equal rights in other words, they are not not written into the Constitution is the right to equal outcome because each of us, as the Constitution understood, are given different gifts, different abilities. Everyone is not the same. Each person, our Constitution, uh, and at least our Declaration of Independence said we are each created by God with inalienable rights that he has given us. So we have the right to be what God made us to be. So a free market economic system rewarded in the, has in the past rewarded excellence. Yes, it punishes failure. That causes people to be sharper and to work harder the next time. But there has always been in the past at least a sense in America that if you failed, you get up and you can try again and again and again. And just maybe one day you'll be successful. Lots of stories through history of people who fell on hard times and really uh, worked extremely hard and did well when they were given the freedom to do so. But now, out of ignorance, we are heading in a very precarious direction. Uh, uh, one of our main political parties has said that if they win the Senate, they will do away with the filibuster in the Senate. They will, do, they will further eliminate the First Amendment with more hate speech legislation increase the number of members in the Supreme Court so that they can control the majority there and define the laws as they desire, add two Washington, D.C., uh, add two states, that being Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, as a way to ensure that the Democrats gain more members in the Senate and have control of that legislative body, and eliminate the Electoral College uh, so that the president is elected by a simple majority. Our founding fathers put all of these things in place to protect the minority. Um, they feared that we would have mob rule, 
Uh, and uh, it seems as though that is, is sort of what's heading our way in many ways as we look at Portland and Seattle and New York and elsewhere. Um, in effect, uh, a, dem- a, a democracy, uh, a, a pure democracy, which wasn't written into the Constitution. In fact, it wasn't the word democracy doesn't appear in the Constitution. It wasn't until the progressives of uh, President Wilson and others started to proclaim democracy as their religion. It wasn't until then uh, that we started to think that democracy was the only viable uh, and good way of, of, of governing. Uh, but certainly um, with that has come the notion of the mobocracy. So get rid of the Electoral College, get rid of all the other safeguards that I just named that the founders put in place so that the party in control can have complete control and there will be no debate over issues uh, that affect the, the, uh, the, the American people. Well, I do not believe for a minute that most Democrats really understand uh, what they will be voting for because they don't understand the wisdom of our founding fathers. Again, I don't believe it's being taught in the schools. They simply think that they can have their cake and eat it too. Various factions, for, if you go to the R- Russian Revolution, various factions that thought that they were very much a part of the movement found out that their uh, heads were on the chopping block uh, shortly thereafter because uh, in a tyranny there cannot be that many people voicing their, their views on things. Uh, unfortunately, Americans have become used to having that kind of freedom, and I think there is an assumption that it will always be there, uh, no matter if we get rid of these safeguards to protect the uh, minorities. So I, I think you could make the case that, that what's been going on, the bloody revolution uh, has already started possibly in the U.S., but there's a special kind of revolution I'm talking about also going on, and that is a color revolution which the CIA instituted in overthrowing the elected governments in the Ukraine and uh, governments in North Africa uh, during the Obama years. There is reason to believe some of the same operatives are engaging in that kind of activity here. Daniel McAdams, who will join me right after the first commercial break and who every day with former presidential candidate Ron Paul uh, speaks and uh, provides a, a television show uh, and, uh, and a, uh, every day at the Ron Paul Institute. He will be with me after the first uh, commercial break to talk more about uh, the color revolutions that he's familiar with and we'll ask him if he thinks uh, they, they may actually be taking place here now. Uh, when you can't get what you want uh, through the voting box or whatever, well, then maybe there's another way. But certainly what I think both parties have really not paid attention to, both Republicans and Democrats, and that is inflation. Vladimir Lenin said, has reportedly has said, quote, the best way to destroy the capitalist system was to debauch the currency. By any continuing process of inflation, governments can confiscate secretly and un- unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens, end of quote. We most certainly right now have a debasement of our currency underway like never before. Well, maybe it could be compared to the Civil War, I'm not sure, but there was an enormous amount of inflation at that time. And we're, we are seeing massive amounts of, of uh, money creation, and you could argue that it isn't showing up yet in the inflation numbers that the government provides, but uh, Alistair McLeod will certainly have something to say about that. Uh, in the second half of the day's uh, show. I I do firmly believe that this redistribution of wealth to an elite few is is a big, big problem in our country. 
And there's no way that it can be fixed other than going back to a – there's no way it can be fixed, at least in a good way, uh, unless we go back to some sort of an honest monetary system. Uh, so we'll, we'll be speaking to Alistair in the second half of today's show. He'll be talking about this inflation issue, um, you know, why it is a huge problem, and also uh, talk about how China is sitting back and watching things deteriorating in the United States financially, uh, socially, spiritually, I would suggest, in many ways, and, and perhaps seeing that its time has come or its time is nearing uh, when it might try to take advantage of, of a very weakened United States of America. So these are very difficult and troubling times for sure. Uh, we, we really need to, to hold true to our faith. I think a, a time for a faith in, in the Almighty and, and realizing that life, uh, life in this world isn't all that we have. There is something beyond that. Uh, but in any event, we do need to try to be level-headed and, uh, and, 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 and approach things logically and scientifically as we uh, move forward uh, in, into these uh, most difficult times. And most certainly, of course, getting rid of fiat money, which is very rapidly deteriorating in its purchasing power, and uh, acquiring honest money, gold and silver, which holds its value over long periods of time, is an obvious move that people who are able to should make. We do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Daniel McAdams will be with me right after the break, uh, and we'll hear what he has to say. It's been a long time since I've talked to Daniel on this show, so I'm really looking forward to it. I'll be right back with Daniel McAdams. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, uh, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, Daniel McAdams. Uh, it's been a long time, a number of years, I think, since Daniel was last with me. He, is, uh, he uh, teams up with Ron Paul at the Institute of Peace and Prosperity. He uh, uh, usually provides a little video discussion of uh, the, some of the major issues uh, in play every day uh, at uh, ronpaulinstitute.org, so I'd 
really suggest you folks uh, might want to visit the ronpaulinstitute.org for some uh, some refreshing ideas about what's transpiring these days and, and why things are happening the way they are. Daniel uh, is the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and he served as foreign affairs advisor to Congressman Paul from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012. In the 1990s, Daniel worked as a journalist based in Budapest, Hungary, including an editorial page editor of the Budapest Sun. He also served as special report uh, rapporteur for the uh, British Helsinki Human Rights uh, Group uh, while based in Europe, monitoring human rights and elections on the ground uh, in various contentious states, including uh, Albania during the 1996-1998 civil unrest. So Daniel's had a tremendous background uh, in international on geopolitics. Uh, he's, he's been involved with a whole lot of different organizations, and now his daily activities at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Thanks for joining me again, Daniel. It's great to be back with you again, Jay. Thanks for having me. It's really good, and I'm glad to know that the hurricane didn't wipe you out down there today, Daniel. I know you're down there in South <laughs> Texas, uh, off of the, uh, and it was a nothing burger for you, you said, so uh, yeah. we're really thankful that you're that you're with us. Um, yeah, I believe uh, I'd like to get your thoughts about the obvious uh, desire to destroy the U.S. Constitution. I talked about it in the in my opening monologue about how, especially the really aggressive liberal Democrats seem to be interested in tearing everything down. The safeguards that our founding fathers put in place, you know, such as uh, such as the Electoral College and. You know, every state getting two senators, and uh, you know, and having the the right to um, uh, to filibuster in the Senate floor, and all those things they seem to want to take away. But what do you think is happening to us? Why do you think do these people not understand the reasons that those institutions were created, and why they were for our own good? Why they were created, or is it an is it an ignorance, or what? Do you, how do you what do you make of it? Well, I think I don't think it's an ignorance. Ignorance. I think they know exactly what they're doing. And, uh, you know, the, one of the causations, and you would, I'm sure, agree with this, is that the stakes are too high. Washington has too much power. There's too much to be gained to hold on to, to, hold on to the levers of power. And uh, if we had the kind of government that you and I would prefer, uh, the really stakes wouldn't be that high. There wouldn't be that much incentive. You wouldn't be controlling trillions of dollars and controlling people's lives. So the fact that the government is so big is one of the causative factors for this mad dash for power. But no, mm-hmm. it's not ignorance on their part. These people are essentially, whether they know it or not, are Maoists in spirit. Uh, they want to destroy all the institutions of our society and rebuild them in a new image. And that image has been informed by, among other things, of course, our popular culture, but also particularly by their university professors and their entire educational background, uh, which has taught them that everything that we value as a republic is, uh, is a tool of oppression that must be overthrown. And so they know exactly what they're doing. Maybe the foot soldiers are not as well-versed, but certainly the people that are guiding them know exactly what they're doing, and uh, this year has been a banner year for them. Well, they may know, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that the vast majority of people who will vote for Joe Biden are not aware of what is at stake here. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't. I certainly don't think the mass uh, majority of the people that are voting for Biden are down there 
ripping down statues and burning up uh, police stations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, however, you do have you do have that element leading and guiding the party and guiding the more radical wing of the party. You know, the irony, Jay, is that um, as as much as this is portrayed as a battle to the death between two radically different competing ideologies, the fact of the matter is there really is very little difference. Um, uh, the, the fake news of a partisan divide in the U.S. Uh, is something that's very caustic. There really mm-hmm. isn't that much difference between the two parties. Uh, mm-hmm. It's between really uh, tyranny and liberty, and that fight hasn't not that battle has not even begun. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right about that. I mean, there's issues. Uh, we we see some issues on the Supreme Court, of course, which is a hot one, um, but. But when it comes down to the issue of tyranny, freedom, limited government, which Republicans have long ago, I guess maybe Barry Goldwater, uh, Ronald Reagan, to at least gave lip service to it, although he built up uh, spending like mad. So he, he built up the government uh, very dramatically when he was in power as well. So I think Republicans, and, and certainly when it comes to monetary policy, as, you're, as Ron Paul knows, uh, as well as you, that uh, Republicans seem to... Not, don't seem to be concerned about spending enormous amounts of money any longer or to printing money, to paying for things either. So these are topics that I'll be talking to Alistair McLeod about in the second half of today's show. But um, so it seems as though that we had a, a soft coup, an attempted coup d'etat against Trump. Uh, first, they, you know, with Russia, the trumped up things about Russia, and then you had uh, the Ukraine uh, supposedly Trump was doing stuff in Ukraine that was crooked and everything else. But you know a lot about the Ukraine and about coups and about color revolutions and so forth. Uh, what, what can you tell us about the Ukraine? Because when we had you on more frequently a few years back, you talked a lot about the Ukraine. You talked a lot about what was going on with the color revolution there. Uh, how do these color revolutions work, Daniel? Well, one of the most important things is to cause a disorientation in society. And you find these primarily in societies in transition. And that's why they were pretty common in Central and Eastern Europe, many of the countries of the former Soviet uh, sphere of influence, uh, because they were greatly transitioning societies uh, from a command economy to a a slightly more free economy. Uh, But when you had the elites controlling that transition and not wanting to let go of the reins of power, you had to prevent against any populism, against anyone who would go against the power that they had. And that's why the color revolutions that I monitored in the 90s included those against people like Vladimir Mechar in Slovakia, who was a populist, and Sali Berisha in uh, Albania, who was a radical free market uh, populist type. But those people had to be undermined so that the people who represented the former nomenclatura could remain uh, in power essentially, you know, de, 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 de facto, if not de jure. And you're seeing a lot of that in the United States. You know, the Trump phenomenon, phenomenon surprised everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. He wasn't expected to win. People believed the polls saying that nine, 97% chance of Hillary winning. I think that was yeah. the New York Times the day before the election or something like this. So people believed these things. So when Trump actually did win, uh, that, I think, is when the color revolution started in the U.S. We're, mm-hmm. we're supposed to be talking about whether there'll be a color revolution after this election. I would, I would put forth that it started uh, the day that President Trump won office. 
You have mm-hmm. to, you know, in, in, in the military jargon, you have to have an intelligence preparation of battlefield before you start the battle. And that's what we had in the U.S., an intelligence preparation of battlefield. Establish the idea and continue it for four years that President Trump was, was uh, elected illegitimately. It was Vladimir right. Putin. It was other things. Uh, that got him elected. He was not elected by the American people. And that's what his opponents have done over and over from day one. So, yes, the color revolution started uh, November four years ago. Interesting. So that all this, uh, this attempted uh, impeachment uh, and, and, of course, the, uh, the Mueller investigation, which came up empty, completely empty, I believe, and... Um, uh, and, and then the Ukrainian impeachment is all part of that game, you think? Absolutely. It's all intended to establish the idea that, the, that Trump is not a legitimate president. And right. I do not say this as a Trump supporter. I'm no, I know that. When it comes to voting. So, so I, have no, I, I have no dog in the race. But yeah. I, I don't know if you've read about this, if you're familiar with this. I'm sure you are, because I heard your monologue earlier, and you, um, and you did reference it. But this Transition Integrity Project, and Whitney Webb, who's a great writer, a great investigative uh, reporter, she wrote about it uh, not long ago uh, in, uh, on her website, uh, which uh, readers can go to. It's um, the uh, Unlimited Hangout. And she talks about this um, Transition Integrity Project got together to war game several different scenarios uh, ostensibly if Trump loses and refuses to leave the White House. But uh-huh. in fact, one of the war games was Trump has a uh, clear victory, and then what do you do? And that is a fascinating article. Uh, this really did happen. Uh, uh, John Podesta played the role of Biden in this war gaming, and you mentioned some of the potential outcomes. This is a pretty big, this is a pretty big organization, and it, has, it counts among its uh, members extremely prominent people, including its co-founder, Rosa Brooks, who was a Pentagon and State Department official under Obama. She also worked for a little place called the um, <laughs> Open Society Foundation. Oh, your, your George Soros. Know very well what that is. Yes, she George was, Soros. Yeah. Uh, he was a general counsel to the president of Soros' foundation. Uh, and as you, as you know, uh, 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 Jay, Soros was himself behind most of the color revolutions, including uh, investing very heavily in the Ukraine revolution. Mm-hmm. So you're having a nexus between the actual real color revolutions in Central and Eastern Europe and the very individuals who were involved in attempting to undermine the results of this next election before they even happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, so we have now, it's moving on to a, a more violent stage now. We've seen in Portland and Seattle and New York and, of course, Minneapolis and various other cities. Uh, and then we have COVID. Do you think all these things are just sort of coincidental? They just happened? Or do you think there might be some, uh, some collusion involved with these different events? Because if the aim is to keep people confused, they certainly have done a great job. Yeah, and confused and disoriented. But yeah. another important aim is to prepare Americans in America for the idea of martial law. And uh, certainly if you look at the response to the coronavirus, particularly in the blue states, and mm-hmm. if you look at what has happened with violence in particularly the blue states, you're seeing an America that's being prepared for the idea of martial law. 
how quickly mm-hmm. people have accepted that, they, that somehow the government has the authority to force them to stay at home, to not go to their jobs, uh, to not go to their churches, uh, to yeah. not go to their restaurants, uh, to put a filthy rag on their face and walk around with it all day. Uh, this yeah. idea that there's an authority among governors uh, and mayors of these states to push mm-hmm. people around like this uh, mm-hmm. is unprecedented. And then when you look yeah. at the unrest in these cities, even people who, even <laughs> frankly myself, it's not that I'm wanting martial law, but when I look at these thugs beating up innocent people, I'm thinking, damn, I don't want to defund the police. I want to send them in there to, to take care of this, this horrible chaos. Uh, these people are yeah. absolute thugs. So, yes, I think we're being psychologically prepared to accept the idea of martial law. And that is, uh, that is extremely frightening. Well, it is frightening to those of us who have lived in this country for so long. And I've talked to many people from Eastern Europe who said that their parents came here just to avoid with this very thing that's going on now. So it, it, it is frightening, and, and uh, I guess we, we, we're out of time now, Daniel. I can't, I can't believe we're out of time already. Uh, summing <laughs> up here, though, what, what, you, you um, address these issues frequently at uh, the Ron Paul Institute, right? So people should go to hear what you have to say there at uh, ronpaulinstitute.org. Yeah, and we have our daily show. It's on YouTube, Ron Paul Liberty Report is our mm-hmm. channel there, and we're actually getting close to a quarter of a million subscribers to our YouTube channel. So uh, we do every day live at noon Eastern time. We do a broadcast Monday through Friday. So we'd love to have your listeners join us as well. Um, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. We'll have to have you back when we can have you for more time. Thank you so much for being with us, and Thanks we'll so do much. it again sometime, hopefully very soon. Take care. All right, folks, so we have to go to break. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod right after the break. Don't go away. Alistair has some very important things to tell you. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. NV Gold Core trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi-million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit nvgoldcore.com to learn more on this exciting story. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm Jay Taylor, your host, and I'm really happy to have Alistair McLeod with me once again. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's very much 
My pleasure, Jay. It's really good to have you, and we need to tell everybody that they should go every Thursday to goldmoney.com to read your latest missives because they really are full of insights. If people really care to understand why things are happening the way they are and not uh, be satisfied with the superficial explanations you get on CNBC and elsewhere, uh, then uh, I would suggest you read what Alistair has to say at goldmoney.com. Alistair, I'd like today to talk to you uh, or have you talk to us, I should say, about inflation, deflation, and other fallacies. You wrote that article on September 10th, and then China is killing the dollar. That was September 17th. Uh, let's Starting with your September 10th article, I'd like to ask you to explain some of the conventional wisdom that we hear every day in the financial medium that are essentially fallacies. You note that the most egregious of these fallacies is that inflation can only occur as the handmaiden of economic growth, while deflation is similarly linked to a recession spinning out of control into the maelstrom of a slump. And uh, end of quote. And I would say uh, this may certainly be the most egregious fallacies, but it is one of the most, I think, one of the most believed doctrines of Keynes of the Keynesian religion. Uh, and so, you know, most people see inflation as a positive thing. They think that's really good because it shows that we're starting to stimulate growth. Uh, money is pumped into the system, so the demand side starts to pick up. Uh, and so they're actually looking for inflation as a sign that they're doing good work. But uh, can you explain why this idea taken as gospel truth is a falsehood? Yes, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, if it was really true that we wanted to pay high prices for goods, then we wouldn't go to the supermarket and look at the shelves for the things that are sort of you know, buy one, get one free or yeah. <laughs> 20% off or whatever. I mean, it's complete nonsense. I mean, the idea basically seems to be, at least this is the story, that uh, you know, if, let us say, we think that prices of things are going to be higher tomorrow, then uh, we will hurry up and buy them today, and that mm-hmm. way bring demand forward. But, I mean, that's a load of rubbish. That only applies in a situation, really, where uh, inflation is is actually running at such a rate that that is demonstrably true but for you know under normal circumstances we know that the rate of inflation price inflation in america is running at about 10 percent. forget what the cpi says we know that's yeah, a little right. bit. Mm-hmm. it's running about 10 percent. but you know does that mean we sort of rush out and um, actually sort of think oh i must buy things before it goes up by 0.001 percent uh day to day uh, no it doesn't i mean it's a complete nonsense the reason that um, uh, the, the, the macroeconomists uh, push the inflation story is actually quite simple, and that is to allow them to print money as part of government funding. And also, by printing money and lowering interest rates, they lower the cost of government borrowing. So that is your real reason. Um, the sort of economic conditions that really suit ordinary people like you and me are as essentially mildly deflationary. Now, what I mean by that is that competition uh, with sound money mm-hmm. drives down prices over uh, over time. So, uh, I think, I mean, I looked at um, sort of approximate prices uh, between about 1820 and uh, before the First World War, and I would say the general price level fell to roughly 0.4% of what it was before. Now, this is a diff- difficult thing over, you know, over a long period of time mm-hmm. because, um, you know, you can't really compare uh, one set of goods with another set 
set of goods simply because people are doing different things. I mean, at the start of that period, there was a lot of subsistence living. Ordinary people just basically made enough or grew enough uh, in order to survive and maybe just a tiny bit left over to clothe themselves and heat themselves. Not much more than that. Mm -hmm. But towards the end of the Industrial Revolution, of course, there was um, very uh, one widespread prosperity. I mean, okay, we hear all the Dickensian stories about workhouses and all the rest of it, but that was actually just, you know, a very small part of the economy. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, I think a modern economy has probably got more uh, misfits, unemployed, however you like, spongers, however you like to define it, because the state will provide. But, you know, the natural um, uh, condition is that through competition, prices basically decline over time and that leads leads us to another thing because if you have sound money in other words there is no increase in the quantity of money in the economy then as prices fall guess what gdp falls now that's meant to be a very bad thing you could look at it another way and that is with inflation if you just pump the gdp figure full of uh uh, false money then your gdp number rises and that is the basis of the fallacy behind it all. This is why nobody questions it. Yeah. So the so the uh, the incentive of government uh, to borrow and to uh, I suppose to buy votes or to um, spend money that they can be involved with uh, somehow enriching themselves. I mean, we see the military industrial complex. Washington in the United States has grown to be such a monstrous. I mean, all of these different. All of these different bureaucracies are just absolutely huge budgets, and there are people living high on the hog around Washington. I mean, one of the most, one of the wealthiest areas in the country is around Washington D.C. because all of these people that are involved in government and government handouts and so forth. So, I guess that's 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 the incentive. Though you certainly wouldn't get that if you in your economics 101 course, uh, your Keynesian course, would you at the university? They wouldn't tell you that's that's the reason you do it as a so people really do believe uh, believe these fallacies. There's others that you talk about as well here. Um, you're a little bit hard on supply siders and demand siders. Um, why, why are they both wrong-minded? I mean, we have the Republicans here that are tend to be supply siders, Larry Kudlow, for example, and some of the others, and and you have the Democrats, which are, of course are full-fledged Keynesians. They want to spend and print money and so forth to pay for it. Well, uh, they're both wrong. I mean, they're both. You're, you're saying they're both, both, both uh, policies are lead down the wrong path. Well, yes, because um, uh, whether a government um, uh, is trying to d- uh, drive demand or whether they're trying trying to uh, drive supply, I mean, basically, what they're doing is they're interfering in the economy. Um, the supply side, uh, you know, driving the supply side is probably. Um, you know, sort of slightly better, if you like, than trying to drive demand, because demand is driven, you know, purely by uh, the inflation story that we've just uh, been Mm -hmm. uh, talking about. And of course, that actually ends up transferring wealth from people to the state. Supply siders, um, the basic, the idea behind supply side is that uh, a government uh, subsidizes business, uh, which is, you know, in in one sense is, is... (laughs) 
is not too much of a sin, um, but it subsidizes business at the expense of everybody else because um, you you end up with a larger budget deficit, and unless savings increase to uh, you know to to uh, fund that deficit, that mm. deficit is funded through inflation. So um, you know, and and with supply side, uh, you know, if you've got an awful lot of time, you can probably create a case that. Um, you know, you start off with a higher budget deficit, but the taxes will roll in later. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point behind it is it's all about taxes. It's all about getting taxes in. From the government's point of view, they will only go down the supply side route if they believe at the end of the day that they will get more tax as a result. And indeed, they openly recommend it on that basis. So, you know, this is why um, I don't really hold too much truck for either of mm-hmm. those parties. Yeah, well, that's. It, it seems that's all they know to do, or all they really want to do. Because I, I guess if you were to roll things back now, this is a problem. If you were to try to go back and reduce government spending, the pain would be very great. And uh, so, from getting getting from where we are, we are now to a more ideal situation, if people would even recognize that as being ideal, um, you know, the 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 Mesians, the free market people, understand it. But obviously, it's not in the mindset of most university graduates. So. Um, the established order then, of course, doesn't believe that that um, they don't believe that, that the established order doesn't believe prices can rise in a falling economy, right? So they think that the only way prices can rise is if is is if prices are you know if if the economy is booming. Yeah. But in fact, you just pointed out uh, during the industrial revolution, the opposite was true. Well, um, <laughs> the. The, the 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 reason that you get um, uh, um, it, well the reason you get greater inflation um, when an economy is contracting is because um, both production and consumption you know we're both producers and consumers and mm-hmm. that happens for every you know in every state of the economy so um, if you have a situation where you've got expanding production and expanding employment and you've got sound money then you can get falling prices. I think we've gone through that. But the yeah. other side, the other aspect of this is that if you get an economy which is um, uh, uh, in distress going down, as it were, uh, uh, then it's it's not just demand that goes down, which if it was just demand, it would lead to uh, uh, to lower prices, but also because everybody who demands as a consumer is also a producer, unless he's unemployed, of mm-hmm. course. Um, mm-hmm. But one way or the other, um, you know, the two things are just tied together. And, of course, Say's Law tells us that this is the case. And guess what? The first thing that the macroeconomic community did was deny the, the, the validity of Say's Law. So they're not going to get the right answer anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Well, there seems to be uh, almost no concern now that, uh, I mean, there seems to be, it's, it seems to be taken as a given by the establishment, by the mainstream press anyway, that interest rates are going to stay low forever. They can't rise. Uh, you have a different view of that, I think. And tell us no, how tell it tell us how Mother Nature might go to work to make that not true. That the that the powers that be that can no longer force rates to, to some negative level or whatever level they want. Uh, right. Well, um, we have a situation at the moment where uh, the government is financing itself through inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know 
forget the idea that uh, the Fed is independent and all the rest of it. <laughs> I mean, the fact is the government is financing itself through monetary inflation. Um, the, 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 the effect of that uh, is to drive down the purchasing power of the dollar. Now, it doesn't happen sort of, um, you know, evenly, but what it what can happen, and this is something that people don't appreciate, is that a relatively small amount of uh, increase in the quantity of dollars can actually drive the price, uh, the purchasing power of the dollar down quite sharply. And this was certainly, I was, I was looking actually at the situation in Germany for a current article, which I'm working on, mm-hmm. uh, in 1923. And uh, there was a period in Germany where um, uh, the um, amount of, of uh, paper market circulation increased by something like 28 times. But the price effect uh, was to increase the quantity of, um, of paper dollars to the, to, sorry, paper marks to the dollar by over 300 times. Mm. You know, and it claimed at the time that this disproved uh, the quantity theory of money. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> It doesn't actually disprove it. All it does is it tells us that there is another factor involved in that, and that is, uh, you know, if you like, human choice, uh, which, of course, is something that uh, the economics of aggregates does not recognize. Right. So, um, what we're going to see, I, I think, specifically, and it always happens this way, the first sellers of a currency uh, which is inflating are the foreigners. And in America's case, uh, because um, it has, the dollar is the reserve currency, because everything internationally is priced in dollars, um, uh, there is a very substantial ownership, foreign ownership of dollars, yeah. considerably greater ownership of dollars than uh, ownership of foreign currencies by American residents. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the value of all the securities held by foreigners is in the order of $20.5 trillion. Wow. That is just slightly more than uh, the um, uh, current uh, US GDP. Um, on top of that, there's a further 6.3, I think it is, trillion dollars of cash and treasury bills and commercial bills, you know, bills of less than six months maturity um, in foreign hands. So mm-hmm. total 27 trillion. Now, that sort of has accumulated really through two factors. Firstly, you have countries and um, uh, commercial entities exporting to America, doing business with America, um, uh, seeing their business gradually expand, and so have more dollars, if you like, on a trade-related basis than they would in a more static relationship. So they... And, and that was certainly the case up until 2018, the end of 2018. Mm-hmm. Since then, obviously, uh, international trade has taken a huge, great hit uh, because of uh, the tariff war between America and China. Right. Um, so, uh, and the the other aspect is that, of course, uh, portfolio investment uh, has meant that uh, the value of bonds and the value of equities uh, held as financial securities has increased uh, uh, quite significantly. Now. With the foreigners having far, far too many dollars, they've got the liquidity. I mean, don't you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of people argue that when you get a crisis, everybody's got to have um, do- dollars. No, they have to have liquidity. They got yeah. over six trillion of liquidity. That is not a problem. But um, if they uh, uh, begin to take the view, and this was the point about uh, the second article you're referring mm-hmm. to about China's on on the dollar if they take the view the dollar is going to go down then there's only going to be one thing they do they will sell it and the dollar will fall and the dollar will fall substantially and it'll get to a point where it starts affecting um the 
2% price inflation that the, right. that the uh, uh, BLS talks about. Um, and uh, suddenly that will become uh, just not believed at all. Now, it is at that stage that interest rates naturally will mm. rise. And they will rise simply because the time preference between the ownership of, uh, of goods now and the ownership of goods in the future is increasing because of the loss of purchasing power of the dollar. Mm -hmm. There mm -hmm. is only one thing that can happen, and that is that interest rates rise. They will continue to be suppressed, but they'd be suppressed at 5%. They'll be suppressed mm -hmm. at 10%. Mm -hmm. And uh, as this spiral continues, uh, possibly they will be suppressed at even higher nominal rates. Right. Now, the so, problem then is, look at what happens to government finances. Government exactly, finances yeah. get completely mm -hmm. screwed. Um, because already, um, I mean, the the, the uh, interest bill uh, last year was was a bit over four hundred billion dollars. Um, now let us assume. Well, first of all, we've now got in this current year we've got um, a deficit which is running at three point three trillion dollars. Next year, I guess it will probably be um, considerably more. I we don't know. We'll see, but mm -hmm. um, it, it could be easily five or six trillion dollars. Um, now the point is that at three point three trillion dollars, um, the, the 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 financing of uh, of of the government um, uh, deficit is now fifty percent taxes and fifty percent inflation. That's crazy, yeah. So. But from March, you know, this switched over. It switched over, and the bulk of the um, financing is now through monetary inflation. Right. There is no way the dollar can hold up um, against other currencies while that happens. Yeah. To an extent, so it, other currencies have got the same problem. But so, uh, sorry, go on. So, so as the, so as the foreigners walk away from the dollar. And I want to ask you about that with the time we have left, that the Chinese, uh, your article on the Chinese, China is killing the dollar. The foreigners walk away. Uh, somebody's got to buy the treasuries. And, and a growing number of demand for, for uh, you know, treasury demand, not, not demand for treasuries, but borrowing demands from the United States government to finance itself. It's going to grow just, just out of this world. I mean, it's just, there's no question about it. If you look at the economic situation in the U.S. and globally, uh, so then, uh, as that happens, people start to say, wait a minute, the U.S. is printing money, they're hyperinflating, essentially. And as you say, time preference, so they have to, they need to, they have to have higher rates. So this, is, this could just really sort of snowball on itself, couldn't it? Really become uh, a snowball. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, the, the Fed has the problem that not only uh, will it be funding uh, the U.S. government deficit and raising more than the government raises in taxes, but it will also have to absorb the selling, or someone will have to absorb the selling of U.S. Treasury debt by foreigners, and also the agency debt as well. Right. You know, and the 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 importance of that article, um, uh, the second article, was that yeah. China has obviously taken a decision that the one thing that she has got too much of, not copper, not gold, not anything like that, no commodity, but dollars. She's mm -hmm. got something like, I mean, we don't know the exact figure, but it, it, it will be probably somewhere between uh, two and three quarter trillion and three trillion of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and that, um, you know, that is too much. And she's yeah. now, I think, from that March. Do, do you remember? We've talked about this before. Yeah, March 23. Yeah, it was March a big, 23rd. big day. Yeah. yeah. You know, Powell says, 
whatever it takes. That's in effect what he said. And yeah. it was quite clear from that point that uh, from the Chinese uh, uh, angle of holding up mm -hmm. to, you know, almost $3 trillion, this is very bad news. They've got mm -hmm. to get rid of them. And I think that was the decision that was, uh, I was tipped off um, yeah. by Simon Hunt of uh, Simon Hunt Strategic Services, uh -huh. who follows uh -huh. China immensely closely. He's got such good contacts there. Uh -huh. But this is a decision that was taken at about that time. So, yeah. You know, I don't believe in coincidence until everything is ruled out. And to my mind, it is not a coincidence. It um, is, you know, they are related. Well, you showed uh, in your article, I think you showed the rising prices, at least from the 23rd on. We saw a distinct change in the markets and the psychology of the markets started to change very dramatically, I would argue, from March 23rd when Powell gave his whatever-it-takes speech. Uh, and, and China, according to your article, has been buying a lot of copper. Uh, a yep. lot of I've read elsewhere as well that they're buying lots of commodities. Yes, uh, and so they're really good. So how are they getting rid of the dollar? They're buying commodities. Is that how they're doing it? And then the other thing I want to ask you about with the three minutes we have left here uh, is this issue of uh, dumping treasuries. And there's a, an article that was written uh, in in the uh, in a press that is uh, global. The Global Times. It's China. It's a state-owned newspaper. Talk yep. just briefly about that and, and, and why we might might see a really a, a rapid um, sell, sale of the dollars by China. Yes. Well, the first thing is that um, she is, she is uh, selling the dollars for commodities. It's as simple mm -hmm. as that. So whoever sells the commodities ends up with the dollars. It's that, it's, 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 then it's not China's problem. Uh, as far as the uh, Global Times article is concerned, um, uh, that was... I think very surprising um, because we know that the Chinese um, have been sort of playing this financial game, if you like, call it a financial war with America, uh, which has been an underlying thing. Um, on that um, on that basis, uh, quite simply, um, uh, I'm sorry, I rather lost the thread of where I was going. Yeah. With. Um, Oh, yeah, the Global Times. I mean, uh, that article would not have come out without it mm -hmm. being sanctioned by central government. It, it, it's as simple as that. So yeah. central government is warning, you know, look, um, unless policies change, um, whatever those policies might be, they, they put it into sort of military aggression. But yeah. uh, I think it's wider than that. Unless it changes, um, we're out of the dollar and well, we're out of your, your bonds. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're out of time. But I just say that if the Chinese are getting rid of dollars and foreigners are getting dollars and they do that first, it might be a wise thing for Americans to think about doing the same thing, at least to the extent they're able. So uh, I want to thank you so much, Alistair, for sharing your insights, as always. Always a pleasure having you. And it's always uh, so so valuable having you. So it's uh, goldmoney.com, folks. Go there every Thursday. I think it's Thursday, right, Alistair? I'll get it right one of these Correct. weeks. Yes, it is. Every yes. Thursday, and you're going to write about what this time? Well, this time I'm, I'm looking at uh, history and uh, the, the uh, German inflation in 1923 okay. and also John Law and the lessons from that. Excellent. Very good. All right. Well, that's it for this week, folks. Uh, next week, uh, I'm going to have Lynn Alden with me again. Uh, Peter Ball of NV Gold is with me and Michael Oliver as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 